Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Wednesday, February 21st, 2018, starting at 1.30 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 145th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer and academic historian Levant Laszlo about the origins of horary astrology and the question of when and how it developed. Hi, Levant. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad and excited to have you on for this discussion because this is a a favorite, as you know, and a long-standing topic of mine, and something that I've been researching ever since 2005, 2006, and it's something that you and I both, I think, have have spent a lot of time studying, which is this question of where does horary astrology come from, and and when did it develop? Right. That's right. That's right. So, uh, tell me first, maybe, or to, to tell my audience a little bit about yourself. Um, where where are you from, and what's your your background in astrology, and what's your educational background? Yeah. Um, well, originally, I'm a classical philologian, uh, philologist, and um, you know, um, I just uh, studied uh, Latin and Greek languages, and I started to pick up um, Hellenistic and also traditional astrology. Um, around 2000. I would say it was in 2003 when I started studying it. And uh, uh, that was a lucky period because uh, in those days, um, uh, a lot of um, um, old prints, uh, uh, so prints of, of old books uh, appeared on the internet. So they became available. And uh, eventually also some manuscripts uh, uh, appeared on the internet. So I could, I, I could study them firsthand. So, and I could see that um, that was a really promising um, area of research because um, although there have been made uh, many efforts uh, on this on this topic, there are a lot of uh, opportunities to 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 do research on. So, sure. um, so, so your original background was in in classics and the study of of ancient languages like Greek and Latin. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So a couple of years ago, I I, I decided to pick up some Arabic too. Uh, but still, um, maybe I can say that my main um, uh, area is uh, Greek and Latin. Okay, brilliant. And you are originally, you're from, and you still currently live in Hungary, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I live in Budapest, Hungary. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you have, so you, you went to school specifically for the study of this and your interests, even though you originally were interested in just classics. You decided that this was a that the study of astrology and the history of astrology was like an interesting historical topic that you decided to specialize in. Yeah, um, well, um, at the time I, I, I started my university studies, um, I had uh, already been aware of some astrological uh, teaching. So I, I met astrology um, sometime in the early nineties. But you know, of course, that was uh, modern astrology. Of course, uh, sure. Uh, but then um, I just came to realize that um, uh, traditional astrology was um, really different from modern astrology, and that it should be um, um, a, a, a field of mine, you know, to to do research on. Sure. So, and and right now you're actually working on a, a PhD. Uh, related to this topic, or or that's broadly related to this topic of. Uh, ancient astrology and and the origins of horary astrology, right? 
That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I am doing a PhD program um, related to um, history of science. And um, um, when we are talking about history of science, we we need to define science um, uh, in contemporary terms. I mean, contemporary with, with the era we are doing research on. So astrology um, in that time was a science. It was considered to be a science, even if, um, if um, uh, nowadays... Uh, uh, there are some some skeptics who don't agree with this, and um, it is this is a part of uh, human culture, and uh, and uh, its history is, is really interesting, and 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 um, uh, and that's why I decided to to enroll uh, this this um, program, and um, my area is um, uh, is late uh, Hellenistic and early me- medieval astrology. So I'm, I'm primarily, um, I'm dealing with texts, um, with manuscripts, and I hope that I can, I can uh, get some, some interesting new results. Sure. So, so especially focusing in on, uh, through the study of classical philology, the surviving manuscripts of the astrological tradition and sometimes comparing them and seeing how, you know, different surviving manuscripts of the same texts are it's the same or in some instances different and then trying to reconstruct what the original was or trying to piece together the history of of astrology based on what survives essentially right yeah um well i guess that um uh, what uh, you are talking about is uh, textual criticism and this is a really hard work because if someone decides to to make a critical editions uh, a critical edition of uh, of these texts uh, they should spend uh, um, a lot of time with uh, with uh, uh, collecting manuscripts and collating manuscripts and 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 um, studying them. So it's it's a really um, it's really tough. Um, so um, what I am doing actually is um, is reading manuscripts, but uh, uh, not with the aim uh, of uh, making critical editions, but uh, with the aim of uh, extracting some information. Um, of them that uh, was uh, previously unavailable. Okay, got it. That makes sense. And that brings us then to our our main topic today. And I was trying to figure out how to frame this topic or how to frame the issue. And I think the easiest way to do that is just to first talk about how so over the past thousand years in the Western astrological tradition, especially in the Practice of astrology in Europe for let's say the past thousand years uh, since the late medieval period. There's been basically four branches of astrology. There's mundane astrology, natal astrology, electional astrology, and what has come to be known as horary astrology. And horary has been a very popular practice for uh, centuries, at least from the eighth through the seventeenth centuries. It seems to be one of the major practices or one of the major branches of astrology but then the issue is that knowing that now in retrospect that horary is so popular uh when you go back earlier to the hellenistic tradition to the tradition of astrology that was practiced in the mediterranean region from the 1st century BC through the 7th century or so CE one of the things that immediately becomes apparent is that horary doesn't show up almost at all. It rarely, if ever, do you see references to horary astrology. And this immediately raises this question for most people that start studying that tradition, which is why is that? Or was horary practiced at that point? 
or was it not practiced? Was it only developed later? And that's really the the crux of the the issue that we'll be talking about today, and that you and I have been researching for for more than a decade now. Right? Is is that basically how the the issue came up to you, or is that was that your initial introduction to it, or how did you become aware of this problem? Well, I guess um, in in pretty um, pretty the same way as you, because um, uh, it was also. Um, Interesting for me to see that um, uh, while uh, horary astrology seems to have been uh, uh, prevalent in Europe in uh, medieval and um, and early modern Europe, um, actually, if uh, if someone uh, looks at the literature extant from Hellenistic times, um, there are no references to horary, at least in this form as we know it, because. Um, the question is um, a little bit more complicated than it seems to be, but because um, the main question is how we exactly define horary astrology. Right, exactly. And, and maybe that would be a good starting point to set a foundation for this discussion. And my basic definition of horary, the way I think it's typically defined is that uh, horary astrology is a it's the practice of casting a chart for when a question is typically posed to an astrologer. And then the astrologer tries to answer the it tries to determine the answer or the outcome to the question based largely, if not solely, on just that chart that was cast for the moment of the question. And and from a technical standpoint, they often focus on using the rulers of the houses and their application or lack of application in order to do, to answer the question and what will happen basically in the future. Yeah, I um I guess it's right. Um uh, I would add um, um a a third factor to this. Um because um when we're talking about horary astrology, we regard it as uh, the fourth uh, branch of um of traditional astrology. Uh but uh, we should ask the question whether it is um it it is a necessary condition. So um we we'll, should we define horary astrology only in terms of a different branch or or we could we could um uh go back in time and and we we should accept um uh the fact that uh it uh, might have existed before but not as a dif- as a different and separate branch. Sure. Yeah, and I and I think that's the point that we'll get to which is that one of our observations or one of the arguments I think or the things that both you and I are a conclusion let's say that we've come to is that horary probably originally developed out of the third branch which is electional or inceptional astrology but certainly it does seem like in later times that horary became eventually a well-defined or a distinct branch on its own of basically answering questions as opposed to electional astrology which is typically more about choosing a, an auspicious time to initiate a new venture or undertaking or, or something to that effect right uh, that's right, but I guess that uh, maybe this uh, dichotomy is a little bit exaggerated, because um, um, in a lot of cases, when when we're talking about um, later branches of astrology, we 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 oppose uh, electional astrology with uh, horary astrology. But if we go back in time, we will see that um, um, the the Hellenistic branch. Uh, which is the common originator of uh, the the common ancestor of uh, these branches uh, that is cotarchy uh, or or inceptions so in this um branch um you will you will you will find um actually um 
both sides of the coin. I mean, on one hand, you will see that uh, it is uh, choosing um, the right time for an action, but also you will find um, uh, uh, event-based predictions. So um, just to to have an example, for for example, um, a topic that can occur is is, um, uh, launching a ship. Now, if uh, it has already been undertaken and so the ship is on its way, uh, we have um, a a fixed uh, time. And of course, we can we can uh, t- we can regard um, this time as an event, and we can we can make prediction on on this. But uh, if uh, if this this uh, launch hasn't happened yet, and uh, it is it is uh, well our decision when we would like to to launch our ship, then we can we can uh, uh, we can choose uh, the most uh, uh, fortunate time for this. So this leads to elections. So basically, what um, should be opposed in this way, I guess, uh, events and elections. Sure, which and, and events and elections were both subsumed in the Hellenistic tradition of under the broad category of inceptional astrology or catarchic astrology from the Greek word katarki, uh, which just means beginning or inception. And it was about casting a chart for the moment that an event or a venture begins under the premise that it will describe the outcome in the future of whatever is initiated at that time right that's right that's right yeah um also this this uh, expression um appears for example in ptolemy's uh, tetrabiblos um uh, referring to um uh, to the beginning of um of um the life of a human being so I guess that um, uh, the, the word itself has uh, really broad meanings in, in Hellenistic astrology, but as a, differ- as, a, as a distinct branch, of course, it refers to, uh, to well, everyday business. Yeah. Right. So just the idea, I mean, essentially that was the basic, became the basic conceptual premise of astrology or one of the fundamental conceptual premises in the Hellenistic tradition, which is just that the alignment of the planets at the moment that something begins will indicate something about both the the quality and the nature of what was initiated at that time and what it will develop into as well as its future and events that will take place in the future of whatever was started at that time and that can be applied to both events and undertakings under the framework of inceptional or electional astrology but even uh, the birth of an individual is a sort of katarchy uh, or an inception because it's the Sort of symbolic starting point of the life of an individual. Yeah, um, and um, just going back to um, to inceptions uh, proper, um, I guess that we we we, uh, we need to highlight something that is very important. Um, when we read texts uh, um, from Hellenistic astrology, and we see that uh, there are uh, different undertakings like uh, launching a ship, or or um, for example, marriage or or partnerships or 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 landing or or uh, business like this, uh, we should keep in mind that um, that most of these um, these actions uh, could be observed uh, from both sides, both um, as events and both uh, as um, as planned undertakings. For example, so uh, elections, basically. Sure. So the the rules of that type of astrology are applicable both because sometimes they're being used retroactively to study an event that has already begun 
and other times they're being used proactively to to pick out a date in order to do a certain type of event or or action. That's right. That's right. There is no no difference at all. Uh, but there are um, some some other cases. For example, uh, the computers, or or for example, running away, or theft, or receiving a letter that cannot be planned or shouldn't be planned actually. So the techniques um, to analyze these uh, sort of um, of events are basically uh, so they could be regarded as the forerunners of uh, horary astrology. Right. So, so what we see when we go back to the Hellenistic tradition is we see, um, in terms of the branches, we basically largely just see mundane astrology, natal astrology, and electional astrology. And, and out of those three branches, natal astrology seems by far the most common in the Hellenistic tradition. And I, and I get the strong sense that that was the primary form of astrology that was used in the Hellenistic tradition. And most of the Surviving texts from the Greco-Roman period on astrology deal explicitly with natal astrology, and a lot of the techniques seem like they were developed in that context. And then after that, electional astrology might be the next emo- or, or inceptional astrology. Maybe, maybe we should agree on a certain set of terms to use in this discussion because I, I feel like we're gonna it's gonna get a little muddy because there's two issues here. One is that. It was always called inceptional astrology in the Hellenistic tradition, and that applied, as we were just saying, to both retroactive analysis of a chart or an event that had already begun, as well as the proactive selection of of an auspicious date in the future, which is more commonly referred to as electional astrology. So maybe for our purposes, would it be safer to just refer to that from here on out as inceptional astrology, or or should we continue using the term electional astrology? Inceptional is, is is the best one, I guess. Okay, and that term electional astrology is is one apparently that came about later in the medieval tradition from a word that basically means to make a, a choice because you're you're choosing a date or a, a moment to initiate a venture, but that earlier in the tradition it was just referred to as inceptional astrology under the premise that you're casting a chart for the inception of event of an event or a venture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I guess that um, inceptional astrology is a better term for this. Yeah. Okay. So we'll stick with inceptional for that, and that'll include both electional and what people sometimes refer to as as event or inceptional astrology. The other one we should probably clarify as well is that although typically it's referred to as horary astrology today, that's a relatively, from a historical standpoint, recent development. And earlier, it seems like in the medieval tradition. That branch of astrology was typically referred to as uh, the branch uh, that applies to questions or interrogations or inquiries, and this seems to be common in some of the Byzantine Greek texts, the Arabic texts, and the Sanskrit qu- texts, where they basically all referred to that branch as questions, basically, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, well. Um- as far as I know, uh, this this expression that um, uh, horary questions, uh, later abbreviated as just uh, horary, um, first appears in English rit- literature um, in the early 17th century. Just because questions, as a word, maybe um, don't uh, convey this this real uh, astrological meaning. So, like uh, inquiry. Basically, uh, whoever just goes to an astrologer to get some advice, 
um, go uh, just for for <laughs> inquiry. So yeah, maybe they just um, wanted to to highlight that um, uh, this is a a sort of um, a very dynamic um, application of astrological rules, and that's why uh, it appeared in the early modern uh, English literature. But yes, if we go back to um, to Latin translations or um, of uh, Arabic texts or 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 to works uh, originally uh, written in Latin, we will find uh, some some the, the words uh, that simply mean questions or or inquiries. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. Actually, um, also the Arabic um, original um, uh, has the same meaning, and and uh, we we could we could track back its history. Um, I guess uh, as as far as the fifth um, century. Okay, so yeah, in Arabic, in what were the terms? I know in Sanskrit they refer to it as prashna, which basically just means interrogations or questions. What was it in Arabic and in very late Byzantine Greek? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, when when we um, um, see some uh, bibliographies of uh, Arabic um, astrological literature, we will find a lot of titles: uh, Kitab uh, Masail, which means um, a book of uh, questions or book of uh, inquiries. Okay, um, and um, well. It seems that um, these, um, the, so this this uh, branch or this this name was just translated into Greek as erotesis, um, which means uh, questions. Um, but uh, I must highlight that um, uh, this expression um, is found in in earlier um, Hellenistic um, uh, material, so that predates um, Arabic literature. But I guess we will talk about that later. But uh, but uh, there are some some uh, expressions like. Uh, the the question of uh, the um, inception, right? And I think that's where what happened in the 17th century. I think that's why it started getting phrased in that way. So, in in William Lilly, for example, who wrote the first major um, astrological manual in English, and it, it was largely because uh, typically books were written in Latin up to that point, and he decided to write his in English, and it, it primarily dealt with horary astrology. And he actually calls it horary astrology questions, as you said. And so that phrase, horary astrology questions, eventually gets shortened down to just horary astrology today. But I think the reason why he he called it horary astrology questions, that word horary just means of the hour or pertaining to an hour, because it's literally a chart question, uh, chart cast for the hour that a question is posed to you, the astrologer. Versus some other, let's say, generic question about the native asking, you know, question about their birth chart or about their life or their marriage prospects or something like that. This is localized to a chart cast for that moment when a specific question is posed to you, the astrologer. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So that's important and and you know we'll use that term a little bit um i i know david pingree liked to use the phrase interrogational astrology to refer to this branch and i might sort of alternate between referring it to the, referring to it as that versus horary astrology just because i think sometimes some of the arguments and debates about this topic get a little bit murky calling it horary astrology instead of the original term interrogations or questions because that Notion that there's a 
that this branch is directed towards specific questions that have specific answers typically um, becomes kind of crucial in terms of reconstructing its history. Yeah, that's right. All right. So this is a question that I sort of stumbled into when I started studying horary astrology or started studying Hellenistic astrology around 2004 and 2005 that um you know just becomes immediately apparent that you have all of these surviving texts some of them are very long that were written in Greek and Latin from the Hellenistic period and there's little to no discussion of horary and Hellenistic and it raises the question of why so I actually published I did like a two year a year or two year long research project on this topic and published one of my first attempts at like writing a sort of quasi academic paper that I published in the NCGR journal in 2007 was titled the Katarki of Horary where I tried to analyze this issue and tried to reconstruct its history and make an argument about where horary came from and how it developed and up to that point, everyone basically just assumed that horary was practiced in the Hellenistic tradition. And one of the things that I was trying to do at that point was, you know, just point out that there's so little evidence of for the practice of horary that we should actually be careful about assuming that it's always been practiced in the form that it is today, because there's something really significant about the lack of references to it, not just by the astrologers, but also by other people who talked about astrology during the Greco-Roman period, including uh, skeptics of astrology who would attack or criticize it. So there, there's a number of famous skeptical attacks on astrology, like by Cicero, by um, Sextus Empiricus, by Saint Augustine. And all three of them, or all of the major skeptics, they attack essentially between the three or four of them, all three of the major branches of Hellenistic astrology. So Cicero focuses on natal astrology, but he also mentions inceptions and mundane astrology at one point. Uh, Sextus Empiricus focuses on natal astrology, and St. Augustine focuses on natal but also attacks inceptional or electional astrology. So one of the points that I made is it's, it's really notable that in this time period, none of the people that are criticizing astrology mention horary, because you would think that if they were aware of it or if it was a practice that was being widely used, that it would be a very easy target to criticize. Yeah, uh, well, um, maybe um, those times, um, um, the, let's say, um, event-based um, um, application of, uh, of inceptional astrology was uh, under the radar. Or um, as uh, the manuals, uh, and there, of course, the, 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 so the number of manuals uh, 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 on inceptional astrology compared to um, on natal astrology is, uh, is really small. Um, uh, if, we, if we look at the manuals, so they, they mainly deal with, with topics that, uh, that are, are focused on elections or, or, or undertakings. So maybe this is the reason why why skeptics and attackers of uh, of, um, of Hellenistic astrology, contemporary attackers of, uh, of Hellenistic astrology, just uh, didn't uh, take notice. Yeah, well, I mean, it to, to me it was just it was evidence of it was additional sort of supporting evidence aside from the fact that it's largely missing from the texts of the famous astrologers whose work survived from that period, like. Ptolemy doesn't talk about you know horary astrology, Valens doesn't talk about it, Manilius doesn't talk about it, Firmicus doesn't talk about it, and so on and so forth. It's not just the astrologers who are silent about horary, 
but also all of the skeptics are silent about it as well, even though they attack the other three branches. And I just took that as additional evidence that horary either didn't exist or had not developed as a full-fledged practice by that point, so that it would have you know, taken been taken notice by some of the skeptics. Whereas in later periods, where you have horary being practiced commonly, it did come under criticism by skeptics like uh, Pico de la Mirandola and other people like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, in in comparison, it it is really interesting because um, um, in the early modern ast- uh, astrological literature, it it also appears that um, uh, at that time it seems um, horary astrology was widely practiced. I would I would use this uh, this term for this uh, later development because. Um, uh, somehow, you know, um, uh, people in the in the seventh and the sixteenth and seventeenth century um, uh, regarded horary astrology as a, as a, as an Arabic development, and 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 they criticized it. So, for example, Girolamo Cardano, and and uh, people, uh, or even later people like uh, Morin, criticized this. So, yeah, I guess that uh, if if um, if you say that. Um, 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 Collecting the uh, the the ancient material, you will see that um, uh, there is um, basically no um, horror material, and also you see that uh, the skeptics uh, don't say a word about that. When then we are entitled to to infer that um, it uh, it uh, didn't exist at the time, at least uh, not in the form uh, that we know it. Right, it starts leading you in a, in a certain direction, or I feel like a, a sort of neutral observer would start to form an opinion at that point in the absence of references to it and eventually we'll we'll get to hear some of the few scattered references that do exist in order to see if we can work that into our understanding to develop a more nuanced approach but at least just the basic starting point is when you're reading through so much of the literature it's so notable the absence of discussion about this approach to astrology between the first and the the first few centuries CE compared to the later medieval and Renaissance traditions where this became just a wildly popular branch of astrology because it's so easy to do and it doesn't require as much um, as much background knowledge or it doesn't require as many things like with natal astrology, you need to have the birth time. You need to know uh, you know when the native was born and you need to have an ephemeris to calculate where the planets were. You know, thirty or forty or fifty years ago, precisely on the moment they were born, in their precise location, and and a lot of that can be kind of complicated and difficult. Whereas for horary, you just need to know where the planets are at right now at the moment that somebody asks you a question. And I always assumed that that was part of the reason, or that was one of the reasons why horary became so much more popular in the later traditions. Um, because of you know some of that ease you know as well as other benefits as well of course it's also a very specific and sort of focused application of astrology on a, on a single specific question and trying to get the answer to that in an affirmative or negative answer. Yeah, uh, well, there, there yeah there are a lot of applications. Uh, you mentioned a couple, but I would add that. Um, so um this inceptional astrology had its its weaknesses because um if we, if we just um uh, see that okay um we can we can uh, start with an event and the time of an event or we can we can also plan some undertaking 
It's okay, but what what if uh, we just don't know the time of a, of a past event, or what if uh, we just don't know uh, the time of a future event that uh, just doesn't depend on us, or just we we just uh, wonder if uh, if uh, if something will come true or not. Um, for example, if a wedding will take place or not. So, well, basically. For these issues, um, I guess inceptional astrology could provide nothing. So maybe um, um, border astrologers uh, went into uh, natal analysis, but uh, I don't think uh, it was worth doing this. Yeah. Sure, sure. Okay, so this brings us then. So we're, we're talking a lot. So, so natal is clearly the primary, natal astrology is clearly the primary practice, uh, I would argue, and the majority of the the uh, we can agree on this. We can, we can agree. agree on this. Okay, so that's not even a an argument. Certainly no. in the Hellenistic tradition, and and then there's a lot of interesting background and sort of reasons, perhaps, for that as well. Especially in terms of like the philosophy of the day, and it, it, you know, it's interesting the prevalence of Stoicism in the Hellenistic period in the first few centuries BCE, and the the popularity of of Hellenistic astrology in the first few centuries, and how focused it is on natal astrology and the idea of you know one's fate and being able to find out one's fate so that you can accept it and all of these other things seem to be part of the the sort of backdrop to the popularity of of uh natal astrology in the in the early Roman empire and you know as further evidence there's also the fact that hundreds of birth charts survive from the hellenistic tradition from like the 1st century BCE through the 6th or 7th century CE and there there are like 95 or 98% all birth charts basically right well i would say even more um if if we uh if we take a look at the at the surviving material we will see that uh, maybe there are like um uh 10 charts that can be called um um uh not natal so not uh, not not nativities okay um, so it's like 99% just birth yeah, charts that survive yeah yeah it it looks like this yeah 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 but um uh, there is uh, one more important point um so you have just been talking about um about the notion of fate about about the influence of philosophy of, of the days um i guess that astrologers um um dealing with with everyday issues um should have competed with 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 ordinary fortune tellers you know using uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 used um uh, uh for, <laughs> fortune telling techniques you know of the days so right, like I, other other forms of divination yeah other forms of divination that's right so um i guess that um uh, somehow um so it was it was uh, it was not so trendy that those days i mean um if if we if we look at the um if the uh, the inceptional uh, material compared to natal material and i'm talking about um uh, manuals and not uh, surviving uh, uh, charts because this is another issue then we will see that um uh, well it is not comparable so maybe the, the reason was also that um, it was it 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 wasn't regarded as 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 cool as trendy as 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 uh, wise looking uh although um what what, what wasn't or could you clarify what wasn't regarded that way uh well, maybe it was it wasn't so it, it didn't look so 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 ancient so wise so superior uh you mean astrology in general or or horary astrology in particular or? Yeah. no 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 inceptional astrology so okay. inceptional astrology um 
but um, uh, there are some. We have some evidence that uh, that um, um, the well, the basic rules uh, of uh, of uh, inceptional astrology go back to Nakapsu and Petosiris, um, the uh, the semi legendary uh, forefathers and founders of astrology. Um, but uh, but yes, um, it it wasn't what wasn't as fashionable as um, as uh, natal astrology. Uh, but uh, you mentioned the charts. Um, there is an important thing when we are talking about um, of nativities. Um, even if uh, the, the the name of uh, of the native is not given, we are we are dealing with uh, with the birth of a person. So maybe mm-hmm. this has a bigger importance than just an everyday business. Uh, uh, even later, we don't uh, really know um, uh, collections of of questions, of even horary questions uh, published, for example. So maybe maybe the the biggest collection of uh, horary cases is uh, William Lilly's Christian Astrology itself. Right, he uses, and that's why his work is so important. Is just there's tons of example charts, but that, that's a really good point, though. I mean, natal astrology probably. You know, one of the things I would argue is it was probably stood out, and the birth of the individual, the moment they were born, was probably seen as important because there was a lot of cultural and philosophical and religious doctrine that had built up at that point in the Hellenistic period about the moment of the birth of the individual and the the descent of their soul through the planetary spheres, and the idea that the soul would acquire different qualities from the planet as it came through to incarnation and then at the moment of birth the alignment of the planets at that time would describe the native's fate and that the planets themselves were somehow the the gatekeepers or the arbiters of fate and that this was very common drawing on texts like in platonism like from plato's timaeus and from the myth of ur in the republic or from hermeticism and some of the the doctrines of hermeticism and other sort of philosophical schools like that probably provided an important part of the cultural context and and philosophical and religious context to understand why natal astrology was really the primary practice in the Hellenistic period because everybody basically believed that the alignment of the planets at the moment that you were born would say something significant about your your life and your fate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we can agree on this. Okay, so so there's that, um, and then there's also the practice of inceptional astrology. And there's not as many texts on inceptional astrology as there are on natal astrology, but there are there are a handful of texts basically that deal with inceptional astrology, right? That's right. Uh, might be starting with uh, Dorotheus. Um, as far as I know, he's the um, so uh, he can be dated to the first century uh, CE. Uh, although we don't uh, really know this for sure, <laughs> so maybe for sure we know that uh, what uh, he worked uh, before the fourth century CE. Yeah, but uh, he um, wrote a lengthy poem um, divided into five books. So unfortunately, we don't know the the title of this this poem, although the edition of uh, by by David Pingree uh, bears the title Carmen Astrologicum. Which is uh, just um, a simply astrological poem, uh, just to give a, um, um, a title for this uh, for additional purposes. And uh, the fifth book of this this poem deals with inceptional astrology. Right. So, so Dorotheus and Dorotheus really becomes the crux of this entire issue 
not completely, but a large part of the discussion really focuses on Dorotheus because this text, which was you know probably as you said written in the late first century, because there's example charts contained in it that date to like the early first century to the mid first century. So we we assume then that he wrote sometime not too long after that, probably in the late first century, around let's say seventy five CE. Um, so this book, the first four books of Dorotheus deal with natal astrology. And then all of a sudden it gets to book five and it gives a bunch of rules for different topics in inceptional astrology. And the problem though, or the the issue, part of the issue that you run into with Dorotheus is that the original Greek text doesn't survive, but instead the main text that we have that survives that tells us about Dorotheus's work is it's essentially, I mean, right now the form that it's in is a an English translation of an Arabic translation, which itself was translated from a Persian translation, which was a translation of the original Greek text, which was written in the form of an instructional poem. So the text that we have today is is a few times removed from its original language, which uh, results in in some issues with the text, as you as you could understand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, there are a lot of issues, but. Uh, I, I guess mean, that from um, from your standpoint as a, as a philologist, what are what are some of the issue, issues that come along with that when you're dealing with this text? Because that, that's one of the issues when I came into the astrological community, I was really surprised at that people were reading Dorotheus and not thinking very critically about it, or not realizing that there were issues with the text, and therefore treating it a little um, haphazardly. I mean, what are from a philo- philological standpoint, what are some of the issues with the Dorotheus text? Well, um, let me start from a more general point. Um, um, actually, um, if we are talking about ancient texts, we should bear in mind that um, that uh, it is not like uh, nowadays. So there, there was no copyright at the time, and um, and uh, also uh, books were copied uh, uh, by hand. So there were some some mistakes made by scribes, and also. As uh, we are go- we are talking about technical manuals, uh, scribes uh, sometimes um, uh, had the freedom or felt free to to make some modification, to add some passages, to delete some passages, to reorganize the text, to make some extracts, to write um, uh, commentaries. In one word, to to transform the the text as they just felt suitable. So it means that. Um, uh, if we just um, look at the extant um, 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 works uh, from antiquity, uh, maybe the only work that was that was kept sort of intact was uh, Ptolemy's uh, Tetrabiblos. But all the other texts were modified, and sometimes the the earliest manuscripts that we possess now uh, come hundreds of years later. So, for example. We can say that um, um, uh, there are a lot of uh, texts in Greek um, that, of course, were written in the uh, in the early centuries, but uh, the earliest manuscripts come from the 13th, 14th, or 15th century. Right, and, and even Ptolemy, I think, like the earliest manuscript that survives from Ptolemy, only dates to the eighth or ninth century, right? Well, in the case of Tetrabiblos, I guess that there, there is only um, a partial uh, manuscript of his from the 10th century, and the first complete manuscript, the earliest complete manuscript, 
comes from the 13th century, as far as I remember. That's why sometimes if we want to um, if we want to see the whole picture, we need to rely on translations and and uh, and other other forms of the text. Um, in the case of Ptolemy, uh, for example, there is a, a trans there is a Latin translation uh, from a from uh, from a Greek uh, manuscript that is lost now by William of um, Urbeke. And uh, this this uh, Latin translation sometimes uh, helps us to settle some philog- philological issues. In the case of um, uh, Dorotheus, unfortunately, it is uh, far more complicated because, as you have just mentioned, maybe the uh, the biggest uh, portion we have from Dorotheus' uh, says, uh, output is is an Arabic translation from a Middle Persian text that was uh, in turn translated from from Greek, but we don't even know that it was. Um, the the original Greek poem, or it was a, a it was a, a, a paraphrasis of of this this uh, Greek poem, because um, it seems that uh, there existed some paraphrases of these texts. But uh, we also have a lot of other sources, uh, uh, Greek snippets from different authors or from uh, different. Uh, uh, later collections that don't bear um uh the name of 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 the compiler of uh, or the author or we have um, um some other uh, other uh translations for example just in the case of uh, Dorotheus there is a, it's a very interesting <laughs> case because it seems that there exists a Chinese version of the of Dorotheus as well right that's a uh- Really interesting point that even some version of Dorotheus was translated or was transmitted to China and, and showed up there and was translated into Chinese. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and, and part of your point here, though, is that in order to attempt to even reconstruct what the original text says, you need to take all of these different versions that survive into account and then attempt to compare them. And sometimes with with Dorotheus, for example, you have the the um, Arabic translation of the Persian translation of the Greek translation, but then you also have some little fragments of the original text of Dorotheus that survive in Greek. You have some quotes from later authors, you have some paraphrases, and then you also have some other translations, like for example, that Chinese translation you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, we need to co- we need to collect um, um, as many sources uh, for this text as possible, um, and then well, th- this is the only way how we can make some educated guesses what the original text contained. Sure, and, and part of the reason why this is important is because as soon as you start reading the Arabic text of Dorotheus, or, or either that there's been two English translations of it so far, one of them by David Pingree when he first discovered the Arabic text, and then more recently Benjamin Dykes has carried out another translation um, of the Arabic text into English that I interviewed him about that was published just last year. Um, as soon as you start reading this text, the Arabic version of Dorotheus, you realize that it's kind of a it's kind of a rough paraphrase of what Dorotheus originally said, and that there's certain things in the text that both have been modified where there's an error or there, there's sometimes errors or other times there's interpolations where something has been inserted into the text or changed in the text that probably wasn't there originally right yeah that's right but sometimes um i guess that uh, we 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 prone to exaggerate uh, uh uh the significance of these passages because uh 
sometimes uh, I guess um, um, so part part of these um, issues uh, can be only translation problems. Uh, like um, uh, the fifth book of uh, of uh, Dorotheus' uh, um, um, poem um, in the Arabic translation bears the title on on inquiries or on questions or interrogations. And it uh, it becomes clear after the first pages that it is not exactly um, the horary astrology um, as one would expect, but uh, but the inceptional astrology of the days. Uh, but I guess that uh, maybe as uh, it was transmitted um, uh, to different cultures and and uh, it was translated uh, from one language to the other and to the other, maybe just um, uh, just to help to clarify. Uh, the meaning for the reader, uh, this uh, expression like questions appeared, and we just uh, well highlighted that oh, uh, this means that uh, somehow it is related to horary astrology, although it is not. Right. Um, yeah, but in, in, in terms of other interpolations, before we get to book five, I mean, there's like a reference to Vadius Valens that's been inserted into the text at one point who probably lived a century after Dorotheus, and so the the assumption is that. One of the scribes had Dorotheus and Valens, the text of Dorotheus and Valens in front of him, and he saw an interesting passage in Valens that he thought would go nicely in this chapter of Dorotheus. So he just copied over that paragraph. Um, in other instances, there's a reference to the Indian concept of uh, Navamshas, and they actually just transliterate the Sanskrit word, I think, Navamsha or something into the, the Arabic or the Persian text. So it's like another instance where, uh, and you're right to point out that these are in the broader context of their overall text, very relatively minor changes that have been made, and the the majority of the text is still clearly very Hellenistic and and very much reads like a first century um, astrological text. But it's it's just the fact that there are these changes. Or for example, in Book Three, I believe there's a, a, a an entire birth chart and a few paragraphs where somebody's inserted a birth chart from somebody who lived a century or two or three centuries after Dorotheus um, into the text. And so things like that kind of stand out because then it means that you can't always take for granted literally word for word everything that's in the text as having come from the first century. Yeah, but uh, sometimes uh, things can be really tricky. You just mentioned um, uh, the interpolation uh, from Wetius Valens, and and it seems that uh, if we try to compare this uh, this uh, this part of the Arabic translation with uh, uh, some some Greek fragments that are ex- extant, we will see that um, actually um, the passage is original or seems to be original. Just um, the attribution is is wrong. Right, it's it's actually from Petasiris or something like that. Yeah, 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 something like that. But yeah, you are right. But it also shows that um, that um, um, uh, readers or scribes of texts uh, sometimes took the liberty to modify the text, and uh, we should be extremely cautious when we are reading um, um, these uh, these uh, old works. That's sure, right. Sure. So the issue when it comes to that is that in Book Five of Dorotheus, the vast majority of it deals with inceptional astrology and it gives rules for either inceptional or sometimes you could call electional rules for how to judge the auspiciousness of a chart for when something is initiated like for casting a chart for a marriage and whether the marriage will go well or poorly or starting out on a journey 
or launching a ship or building a house or other things like this. And the vast majority of the chapters in the book deal with that. But then there's six distinct chapters where it's like talking about inceptional astrology, but then there'll be a reference to horary astrology and casting a chart for uh, a question rather than just an inception or an event. Yeah. Um, so it is it is really really hard to spot uh, which uh, which passages are the interpolations, and sometimes uh, we can we can just uh, kill some passages just because uh, the wording um, um, doesn't uh, doesn't suit our 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 understanding. But um, but sometimes we can we can see if we if we have the chance to to compare the text with with um, with some other sources, most notably to uh, to Hephaestion's uh, uh, book three, which is uh, mostly based on the Orpheus, and sometimes uh, we are so lucky as to 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 see some actual uh, verses from the um, from the uh, original poem. Uh, then we can see that maybe uh, there are just uh, some some minor modifications sometimes uh, uh, which is uh, maybe a little bit more implicit in the original text is is made into a more explicit form but uh, given that the, the original piece was uh, a piece of poetry even if it is didactical poetry then um well, it is really really hard to see uh, the, the the exact boundary between between um, explication or or conscious modification. Right, definitely. And I mean, one of the issues is that in the later medieval tradition, one of the things that becomes really clear is they once horary had been developed and it's being practiced widely by the eighth and ninth centuries, they were often drawing on earlier. Texts like Dorotheus and the election, what were originally clearly electional rules that were presented in Dorotheus, and they would transform the rules that were originally given for, you know, picking an auspicious chart for a marriage uh, in the context of electional astrology, and they would turn that into horary uh, instructions for how to judge a question if somebody asks you, "Will I get married?" And so one of the the questions is. To what extent, when you're reading the Arabic text of Dorotheus, when it mentions horary astrology, were those references in the original text, or were some of those references added in later by the scribes once the concept of horary astrology and once the practice already existed? Well, I guess that um, uh, there are at least uh, two instances when we can see something that um, that is very similar or is, is very close to horary. Um, well, it is not my observation. It, it has al- already been um, uh, highlighted by Ben Dykes in, in his um, uh, his introduction to uh, to the uh, translation of uh, Hephaestion's third book. Um, that um, there are two passages in in um, in the um, Greek um, extant uh, form. So in the Hephaestion's um, uh, uh, paraphrases of uh, Dorotheus. Um, no, most notably, uh, when it is about um, uh, a wife uh, who is running away, uh, then um, the, the text instructs us to to look at the at, at the chart of uh, of the inquiry when when the when when the querent goes uh, up to the astrologer to to ask about his wife. Although at first it first says, if you know when the wife departed, then cast a chart for 
that, and that will be the chart that you judge. But then it says, however, if you don't know when the spouse departed, then you can cast a chart for the time when the client the client asks the astrologer about the matter. That's right. That's right. And um, and as uh, this 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 um, this passage is found in both the Greek um, uh, version and in the Arabic translation. Uh, well, we can suspect that uh, it it must be genuine. And also, there is another instance, and uh, this is about uh, um, uh, runaway slaves, I guess. And um, when um, when the moment uh, when when the owner uh, learns about uh, the running away. Um, could also be used uh, to cast a chart. So um, we will see that um, uh, we s- uh, actually um, these texts, um, so these passages provide us uh, three possible times for casting a chart. The first thing, and this this is maybe the best scenario, is um, at the time of an event, um, uh, provided we know what when it happened. Uh, the second best option is when when um when we just uh, hear about um um an event or, or or about an action and the third um um and this is the third best scenario i would say is uh, when when someone wants to consult about this with the astrologer and i guess that um in the dorotheus text we could we can see uh all three possibilities right and, and that was part of because this came out basically in 2013. This was the big result of the publication of the translation of Book Three of Hephaestio to, for the first time into a modern language by uh, Eduardo Gramalia and Benjamin Dykes in 2013. And the identification of those two passages, which were chapter 11 and chapter 47 of the Arabic Dorotheus, the fact that they were able to find parallel references to casting a chart for when the question is posed to the astrologer confirmed that those references to some very early version of horary astrology were definitely in the original Dorotheus text, even if they were only mentioned like a few times or a handful of times maybe in what was otherwise in the fifth book was largely just rules for inceptional astrology. And that was one of the arguments that I made in my book in inferring that part of what was happening here is there were these this hierarchy of symbolic moments of importance, which seemed to be based on these two instances. One, the casting a chart for the you know when your spouse leaves you and to find out if they'll come back, which is chapter eleven of Dorotheus, and then chapter forty-seven, which is the you know, Roman slave owner who casts a chart for when their slave runs away in order to see if they'll come back or if they'll be returned to them, that there was clearly this distinction where the moment that something actually occurs, and if you know the alignment of the planets at that inception or at that that commencement, then that's the most important thing and that's what you use within the context of inceptional astrology. But that if you don't have that, then there's these other two defaults that you can go to, which are the moment that the person involved in the event learns of its occurrence. And then finally, if you don't even have that, then you fall back to the moment that the person involved in the event asks the astrologer about the outcome. And there you can start to see a sort of nascent branch of horary astrology start to develop then out of inceptional astrology. 
Yeah, and I guess that we can regard these instances as the, the beginning of horary astrology. And of course, um, if we if we uh, look uh, at uh, other texts from the later period, we will see that how how there is a, a paradigm shift, so to speak, because uh, events um, are very hard to 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 uh, to see and time. So uh, it is it's really hard to to take the time the exact time of an event. So um, if if there are some other defaults, I guess that it is more comfortable for an astrologer to 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 rely on. Yeah, I mean it, it becomes a matter of not just convenience, but but you know seeing different potential moments of symbolic importance. Because I think the the where the other the other thing that comes in here was a parallel practice, and this is part of was part of the thesis of my horary paper in two thousand seven, where even though my thoughts have changed and new evidence has come out that have certainly changed my conclusions, this is one part that was actually still pretty solid, and I think was eventually validated, which is that part of my argument was that it seemed like even though horary astrology wasn't a major practice in the Hellenistic tradition, that they did seem to have the concept of what modern astrologers call a consultation chart or what Benjamin Dykes refers to as thought interpretation, which is that they would cast an inceptional chart for the start of a consultation between an astrologer and a client under the premise that the chart cast for the moment of the consultation would describe what the client was thinking about and what they were approaching the astrologer to talk about in the consultation. And that somehow the the practice of that, which we can see references to in in Hephaestio and other authors, is part of what morphed into partially the practice of horary astrology as well. Because once they had figured out that you can cast a chart for the moment of a consultation and it will tell you what the client is thinking about, it's just another sort of conceptual step from there to then try to answer the question that the client is thinking about or to try to determine the outcome of their thoughts. Yeah, and I guess that this is a really interesting case because um, this uh, thought interpretation was, uh, as it seems that it was a part of um, of the broader uh, inceptional concept, but it could have uh, evolved into a full-fledged separate branch of astrology, but somehow it was um, it, it, it was never able to do so. So, um, yeah, um, in this case, um, the most interesting fact is that uh, we are talking about an event, but this event is um, is to, to consult with an astrologer. And one might ask the the the, the most obvious question: that what is um, this um, thought interpretation for? So, right. if uh, if if there is a client who has uh, some clear intention, what what sort of questions to, uh, to come up with uh, in the presence of the astrologer? Then why why is it so necessary so right what's the purpose of doing a consultation chart or, or knowing this information i mean there's different possibilities i mean we can sort of speculate since unfortunately nobody really says for sure but in some instances you know one of the things you learn as a consulting astrologer is sometimes the client doesn't tell you the astrologer exactly what they want to focus on but instead they'll kind of test the astrologer to see if they can sort of infer or if the astrologer can figure out just from the chart what the person wants to know about. So it could have been to demonstrate the skill of the astrologer or to instill some sense of confidence that the astrologer actually does know what they're talking about as a sort of 
which is a little weird because then it's almost like a parlor trick or like a magic trick that the astrologer does at the beginning that's you know surprises the client and and then maybe the consultation goes better after that point once they have some faith that the astrologer really has some some predictive ability you know in other instances sometimes clients are not as open about getting to the point of what they want to talk about or sometimes they'll they'll sort of dance around the the thing that they really want to talk about and so this may have been a, a technique for getting straight to the heart of what the client really wanted to focus about or really needed to focus about, even if the client themselves, you know, wasn't fully clear on on the issue or something like that. I mean, those are some of the speculations that I've thought about over the past decade. Well, I guess I I, I must say that I completely agree with you because um, my my ideas are basically the same. So on one hand, we can we can say that we uh, a practicing astrologer wants to impress a client and also uh, sometimes it is just about um, focusing um, narrowing down what sort of uh, areas uh, should be um, should be checked or what sort of what sort of uh, 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 issues uh, should be dealt with um, given uh, the fact that uh, um, the natal astrology was uh, was the, the, the most prevalent branch of astrology um, in the Hellenistic times, uh, I guess that uh, it was a, it was a really valuable tool for an astrologer to have something that that can that can save them from uh, from laborious work and uh, and enable them to uh, to to just work for uh, with the real thing. Yeah, and right. um, there is one more important thing I just want to highlight, and this is not an original idea of mine as well. That um, when we look at uh, Hephaestion's. Uh, uh, chapter on on thought interpretation, we see that, that there are different sections uh, with uh, with different techniques, and uh, there is um, as a part about uh, the twelfth part, which uh, just um, seem to focus on the content of the the thought. So not about uh, not not to to predictions regarding uh, these issues. But on the other hand, we will see that um, uh, that there is um, another separate technique um, uh, given by Hephaestion, and it might go back to Dorotheus, but it is not exactly clear if this is the case, that deals with a lot of fortune. And uh, here we can see some clear examples of, uh, of not just identifying the thought, uh, interpreting the thought of, of, of the client, but also to give predictions on. Right. So this is a really important point because this has become, or at one point this is a point of dispute, and this is something that ben, Benjamin Dykes and myself spent a lot of time arguing, which is that it, part of our argument about the origins of horary evolving out of consultation charts or thought interpretation was that thought interpretation and consultation charts is both procedurally but also conceptually distinct from the later practice of interrogational astrology or horary astrology questions because procedurally, most of the thought interpretation information is literally just about determining what the client is thinking about and it's not at all oriented towards making a prediction about what the outcome or the result will be. Whereas horary astrology, as it later developed, was very much geared towards and oriented towards figuring out what the outcome of the querent's question would be and what would actually happen in the future or what had happened based on that chart. And 
so we sort of and Ben in his book The Search of the Heart because what happened is that I originally made this argument about Horary developing out of consultation charts because I was aware of the chapter in Hephaestia where he has the 12 parts and the the thought interpretation based on which 12th part is rising and what the client is thinking about and I also um one of the things that I saw was that in the later tradition they still had some things embedded in horary astrology that implied that the horary chart was always being exchange was always an exchange between an, a querent and an astrologer and even though that's changed in modern times because nowadays many modern horary astrologers say that it's okay to cast your own charts there was actually rules in some of the early horary authors like masha allah that you you're not allowed to cast charts for your own question that you always have to pose it to an astrologer or to another astrologer which implies that it was or may imply that it was originally conceptualized as an exchange of a question between one party and another and additionally there were certain rules that were still embedded in the tradition like the considerations before judgment where it would say if saturn is in the 7th house then that means this is bad for the astrologer or the astrologer will make a mistake implying that the astrologer was always implicated in and that the horary question was always supposed to be exchanged with an astrologer so that was part of my original inference that horary developed out of consultation charts and then what happened is over the next few years ben dykes trans found a bunch of medieval texts that were specifically written on consultation charts and thought interpretation and he translated them and this seemed to further demonstrate that this was a major practice and that horary was sort of intimately connected with it while still being somewhat conceptually and procedurally distinct and he made a pretty strong argument in his book the search of the heart which is a translation of the work of Hermann of Corinthia that um horary and thought interpretation were conceptually and procedurally distinct but i understand that it's a it's a point that some people argue because especially in the later horary tradition this becomes kind of jumbled or becomes kind of mixed up and there's not a lot there's a lot of overlap and not a lot of distinction where somebody could argue that horary astrology is the same as consultation charts or the same as other practices and I, and I know there's some people that do argue that well um i guess that um um these consultation charts or or thought interpretation uh in this form uh which um already appeared um uh early um in the hellenistic tradition as it seems uh, just provided some sort of framework um uh that could be developed later because uh as uh, we have already uh, been talking about uh, uh about the inconvenience of event charts and the presence of uh, second and third um, uh, defaults in this case uh i guess this this um, made it possible for astrologers to uh to rely on on consultation instead of events when they wanted uh for right. example we can see some some cases uh, we can talk about them later uh in the 5th century um but at the same time i don't think that the development of uh, hor- uh, the eventual uh, development of horary astrology uh, completely uh, eliminated um a thought interpretation so as it seems that it coexisted with it um um in the early arabic era or even later so it is it is really hard uh, to see in details because uh, 
a lot of Arabic material hasn't been um, researched yet. Uh, but yes, um, I I do think that um, that somehow this um, this uh, consultation, so this uh, thought interpretation, uh, played uh, a pivotal role in the development of horary. Although we must also uh, see that when we're talking about horary astrology, we often think uh, of the of the Arabic form of this horary astrology and. Well, the techniques that uh, were eventually developed are really, really different from the from the techniques of the previous era. Right. So that's a really important point. Where um, once we do eventually start seeing horary start to develop, well, I guess there's a few points there. One, the way that we understand horary today, and the way that it has been since about let's say the ninth century, where the primary approach is looking at the rulers of like the ruler of the ascendant as representing the quarant and the ruler of whatever the house is that matches the topic under consideration and seeing if the ruler of uh, those two houses are applying to an exact aspect or separating from an exact aspect as indicating an affirmative or negative answer and that's sort of what i call a, a dynamic approach to horary because it it involves like this notion of movement and an application and separation as indicating what will take place in the future or what will not take place that's very different because we don't see a lot of that in the earlier hellenistic tradition and most of the electional rules uh, in hellenistic astrology are very static and and interestingly they're often very focused on just the four angular houses so and i actually i've argued that part of the reason for that is that some of the electional rules may have started to develop in a period, like a transitional period during the Mesopotamian and Hellenistic tradition where only the four angular houses were being taken into place uh, to some extent, or, or it might have been something like that because Dorotheus himself claims that he was drawing on a variety of different Mesopotamian and Egyptian sources for his electional rules, and a lot of those rules Seem like they just focus on the four angular houses a lot. I mean, do you think that's yeah, true, or am I am I overstating that point a little bit? I mean, I don't want to. No, 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 no. I uh, well, um, actually, there is a book uh, written by a German scholar uh, Wolfgang Hübner, who um, uh, and this book is um, is uh, on the on the concept of of of, uh, of space and time and and um, social roles in in inceptional astrology and um, in the appendix of this book uh, there are a lot of um, of uh, conceptual uh, conceptual charts for for uh, different topics and how how uh, uh, different authors uh, approach these topics in terms of uh, the houses let's use this this uh, astrological expression and uh, then there we will see that um most of the cases um the angular houses are used uh, for different uh, uh, for different uh, players of the game right uh so uh, i guess that you are you are you are right uh, assuming that uh, that um it it was the most important part of 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 uh, of uh, the astrological approach uh not to speak about the fact that um as it seems um um so we can say that um uh horary astrology as we as we as we know it um starts somewhere f- in, in the in the 8th century for us uh with Masha'Allah and 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 his his students and Umar 
and and some later authors. Right, in terms of looking at the perfection between the rulers of the houses. Yeah, and and it also so it when it appears it is it is so developed what, that that we I, I personally I can't resist the um, the uh, to 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 get the idea that it must have existed before. Right, because it just it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Where the first full, basically in Western in the Western astrological tradition, the first full texts on horary are by Masha Allah and and Saul in the and other authors like that in the very late eighth and early ninth century. And it's like it's it's sort of fully formed at that that point, or at least a lot of the rules are in place, and they're looking at the perfections between the rulers of the houses, and they have concepts new concepts or what appear to be new concepts like transfer of light or collection of light and and other things like that yeah but uh but, but my point here is that um that um there are some scattered um uh, pieces some 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 small details that that tell us that maybe at the time there was uh, also um a, a more ancient tradition that um uh, the querent was uh, was assigned to the first house, and and the quesited was was assigned to the seventh house, whatever it was or whatever they were, and that uh, that assigning uh, the different uh, uh, types of uh, of of, of uh, quesited um, persons or of quesited things uh, to so in in the whole circle just uh, came a little bit later, of course, well before the um, the the eighth century. Right, so that that kind of ties into your point about earlier how the earlier electional rules, like from Dorotheus, are, are so strange because they focus on they almost focus almost just exclusively on the four angular houses using this concept that the first house or the ascendant represents the one who initiates the action, the seventh house or the descendant, roughly generally speaking, let's say the the sign around the setting or the area around the setting. Uh, horizon represents the person receiving the action. The midheaven or the tenth house represents the action itself, and then the fourth house or the IC represents the the outcome or the result of the action. And it's like almost every electional rule in Dorotheus and Hephaestio falls into that general rubric or framework. And then what's weird is that some of the early horary stuff that starts to develop later. It seems like is initially put into that framework as well, which makes it look a lot different than later horary works, which focus on the rulers of the houses. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. And also, uh, maybe um, we just uh, we, we just uh, uh, take it naturally that um, when we are to- talking about different topics, we just uh, look at the houses. But it is not so self-evident because if we go back into the Hellenistic tradition. And I'm talking about um, uh, even um, NATO tradition. We will see that uh, for different topics, we had different different approaches. For example, we had the uh, we had the uh, the possibility to look at different topics on the level of uh, general significators, um, to use a, a later term. Uh, that is planets, or there were lots. For example, uh, found even in, in the Orthaeus. But uh, somehow it seems that uh, the Arabic uh, tradition, or or the tradition that that uh, would uh, later become uh, the Arabic horary astrology, uh, relied on on houses and house significators exclusively. And this is really interesting, I guess. Right. There was some sort of change, and and this is where we get to the other 
references to horary that do survive in the the very late Hellenistic tradition. And this is from a collection of fifth century horoscopes that uh, survive in Greek, and they were translated in the book uh, Greek Horoscopes by Neugebauer and Van Hosen. And those are that's a collection of charts that you've done some some significant research into, right? Yeah, um, actually, I'm I'm trying to to um, to um, uh, write a paper on these um, extant horoscopes because uh, uh, these ones, these pieces, belong to the collection of uh, of, um, of an astrologers whose um, whose name is unfortunately unknown, but we but uh, not the Pingree um, um, thought that um, that it was um, an astrologer, a court astrologer of the Emperor Zeno. Um, um, who was a Roman emperor in the uh, late days of the Roman Empire, and um, in this collection uh, we can also we can see um, ten um, inceptional charts. Uh, some of these inceptional charts uh, are extant only in Arabic sources, and uh, while there are some cases of event charts, for example coronations and installations. But also, we can see that um, there are some some clear cases of consultation charts, or let's say horary charts. Right. So, so it's mainly inception charts or, or or electional charts. But then there's a few really distinct instances, and one of them, one of the ones that's the most clear cut, that seems to be a case of horary astrology or, or a, an interrogational astrology question. Is about a, a ship, and it's it seems like it's about a client who approached the astrologer, saying that there was this ship that was supposed to be sailing to them that was supposed to arrive from Alexandria, but it never arrived, and they want to know what happened. And the astrologer appears to have cast the chart for the data date and time of the question using the location that the the client and the astrologer were in, which seems to clearly make it a horary chart, basically, right? That's right. Um, also, uh, there are two more cases of uh, of, uh, of ships, and uh, we also have um, uh, some other cases as well. So yes, um, in the case of uh, of ships, uh, it is it is clear that uh, there was someone who was worried about the arrival of a ship. So there were actually three people were <laughs> uh, uh, worried about this. Yes, and and it is it is clear that it, they must have been um, um, uh, horary charts or consultation charts because uh, we don't exactly know what 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 was the the, the real time uh, for for casting the chart, but uh, but it was it was clearly not the not not the, the start of the ship. Right, they may not have known when the ship departed from Alexandria. And I think I, I think I recalculated at one point, and it was clear based on like the midheaven or something that they had calc- they calculated it for where they were in modern day Turkey in a city ancient city known as like Smyrna or, or something like that. But it's interesting looking at this chart because then they largely use almost like electional or consultation type rules in order to interpret it, and it is not. At all the the later sort of dynamic approach to horror using the rulers of the houses that we're familiar with, but instead it's almost like they're taking some of those earlier electional rules and trying to apply it, apply it broadly to this chart in order to interpret it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what is more um, 
the the author of these uh, these cases uh, explicitly says that um, it is it is worth um, examining the uh, the ancient teachings because uh, we can learn a lot from them. And uh, it is not just about inceptional astrology, I guess, but it's also about natal astrology because um, natal astrological rules could also be transformed into um, into um, inceptional rules because they were they just came handy for 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 the for the astrologer. And yes, it is it is really interesting because uh, there is a sort of a more general um uh, approach and not 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 this sort of uh, narrowed down and down to the earth method that we can see in the later horary charts right so so what this impl- what we know then based on this chart is that while you know we only have these these one or two clear references to horary in the arabic version of dorotheus from approximately the 1st century so there's some Sort of nascent branch of horary developing at that point. By the fifth century, we have the first actual example of a horary chart that has been cast, and we know that astrologers are starting to use this. Then, or at least we finally have evidence that this is definitely starting to emerge as a sort of uh, a, a, an approach or a branch of astrology by the fifth century, which is is actually pretty late. This is by we're basically getting towards the end, very end of the Roman Empire at this point, and getting towards the end of what we usually refer to as the Hellenistic tradition, which which ends around the sixth or maybe seventh century tops. Yeah, but maybe this is just coincidence because uh, we are talking about the court astrologer, uh, the Emperor Zeno's astrologer. So maybe he was so proud of his um, his uh, his successes that he just wanted to to exhibit them. So that's why these these charts are extant. Uh, don't forget about the fact that uh, these charts are, are 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 found in different manuscripts. So. Maybe the only only reason why we can we can group them and we can assign them to Zeno's astrologer is that uh, they are very close uh, um, in terms of of, of date. Uh, they use the same set of data. They all use uh, they all use uh, Ptolemy's uh, uh, tables. They all use this, uh, uh, very similar astrological concepts, and um, some of them deal with uh, with some political personalities of the era that are related to uh, to the, to the emperor himself. So maybe this is the only only reason why we can just uh, found this uh, this late collection. Right? Who knows that? So, so the question though still is: is this? Evidence then the fact that this astrologer cast a horary chart in the fifth century is this evidence of a new development that horary had just started or was just starting to become popular at that point, and that's why we don't see the first horary chart appear into the fifth century. Or is this demonstrating something that had been done all along, but simply the evidence hadn't survived until the fifth century, even though other astrologers had practiced it up to that point? Well, unfortunately, I guess that there is no right answer for this question. Right, so, we, have, we uh, have no idea. No, we have no idea. It is it is clear that uh, that um, uh, even at that time when it was available, um, the interpretation was mainly based on events. But uh, but sometimes when 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 it was more convenient for the astrologer, they just relied on 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 consultations, and I guess this is a trend that we can see from the previous centuries, and that that would continue in the later centuries as well. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a really important point that you just made, just because it means there may have been there was probably something 
in the earlier Hellenistic tradition that held them back where they thought that that notion of um, temporal moments of origin or, or moments of origin in time, that the the closer you could get to casting a chart for the true symbolic origin of something, the more that chart, the more reliable that chart would be for something. And so there was almost this conceptual tendency that pushed them more towards inceptional astrology if you knew the the correct time and it was only sort of a backup plan sort of where they would fall back on something like horary astrology if they had to. Um, whereas later on, it, it almost gets reversed. And in a lot of the later traditions, they're casting horary charts for everything and that almost becomes the primary practice in, in somebody like you know William Lilly compared to the earlier traditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me mention two things. Uh, one thing is that um, um, that it is sort of commonplace in in Hellenistic natal astrology that uh, there is the so-called petosiris law, uh, which is a sort of a relation between a conception uh, chart and between a birth chart. Now, just the question comes: that why do we really need a conception chart if we don't really want to deal with it? So you mentioned that um, that um, the 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 very moment, the the most important moment, was constantly seeked after. So maybe um, it was it was also true in in in, in natal astrology. And yeah, later on, um, I guess that uh, 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 practicality won <laughs> finally. So uh, 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 astrologers uh, seem to have started to abandon. Uh, event-based calculations for for um, uh, consultations, and yeah, it 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 would lead uh, to um, um, a suppress of uh, of uh, event charts. Although um, even in in Arabic astrology, um, in handbooks called uh, Book of Questions, we can we can see some um, some instances of of uh, of uh, event charts, decumbitures, for example. Sure, sure. Okay, so so we talked about the fifth century charts. I do want to mention there's there's two other pieces of evidence for horary in in the Hellenistic tradition or the early Hellenistic tradition, roughly that we should mention briefly. One of them is there's some manuscripts, some passages that survive that were evidently attributed to Hermes Trismegistus that were of uncertain date that we we can't really date based on what's contained in them, and they seem to have. Like a, a lot of fortune type calculation or something like that, that seems to be used for something like horary astrology. Although it's, we don't know what the dating is of this, and so it could it's written in Greek and therefore could have been written any time between the first century and, and the seventh century or so, basically, right? Yes, but um, in in the edition of this text, uh, uh, Franz Cumont, the editor, um, had a theory about um, about the dating. Because the text um, itself uh, contains uh, reference to crucifixion, and uh, historians claim that crucifixion was abolished by uh, Constantine the Great sometime in the fourth century, so it means that um, uh, the, the, the text uh, should be earlier than the fourth centuries. Fourth century, so right. it is it is possible the- yeah. theoretically, as long as it's not being copied over or something by. Well, I guess the original theoretically, if it did refer to crucifixion, so it would have been written sometime prior to the fourth century. Okay, I understand your point. Okay, so that and that's the Hermes text, and then finally, the only other one that's contemporary that's important is the 
the Yavana Jataka, which has a, a bunch of chapters roughly connected to horary, although most of them are actually on thought interpretation. And that was the other major piece of evidence that I had, which is that if Pingree's dating of this text is correct, then it dates to sometime around the second century, and it was drawing on an earlier Greek text from probably sometime around the first century. And the majority of the text deals with natal astrology, but then you get uh, certain ways into it, and then all of a sudden it starts outlining all of these chapters for determining the thoughts of a client who approaches you for a consultation. And then eventually, towards the end of those chapters, there are just a few chapters. Uh, there's one that gives kind of like a mathematical formula, and it, it, it's almost like a lot type calculation, except it's not. But it says if it falls in this certain part of the chart, then it indicates that the fruition of the thoughts will be affirmative. And if it falls in the, this part of the chart, that it indicates the fruition of the thoughts will be negative. So it's kind of giving an outcome to the thoughts, which under our earlier definition would qualify as a as a type of horary astrology, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, the only problem uh, of, of this text is that uh, Pingree wanted to date it uh, for the second century, uh, but um, but um, another scholar named Bill Muck um, uh, proposed a new dating uh, based on the, um, the astronomical chapter found at the end of this work, and uh, he now he he claims that um, maybe this this uh, Jataka in this form was composed some time later. So um, actually, it also uh, makes it possible that um, that uh, it is uh, sort of contemporary with this uh, fifth char- fifth uh, century charts. Right. So Bill Max says I think that it could be as late as the the fifth or sixth or seventh century, and he doesn't really know for sure, but that Pingree's the certainty surrounding the secondary uh, second century dating should not be completely relied on. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, well, I'm I, I'm not aware of the exact details, but um, but uh, it seems that uh, the astronomical chapter uh, must be interpreted in a different way. Um, uh, Bill Mack, uh, discovered some some new manuscripts for the Yavanajataka that helped to clarify some some obscure passages of the text, and and now it, he he says that it is impossible to to maintain uh, Pingree's thesis. Yeah, I mean the only thing that Bill Mack didn't address though was there was some like Pingree did have some in his commentary. He talked about the iconography of some of the zodiacal signs and some of the decans, which he then connected back to motifs that were uh, there in like first century Egypt, and that was like one of his other angles for dating the Avanajataka in both its its origin and its potential time frame. And so there might be some other sort of reasons why he dated it to the second century that may, at least in terms of the source text that it was drawing on, potentially still be valid. And I'm actually curious if at some point that part of his argument will be addressed as well. Well, we will see in the future because, as, because as I know that um, um, Bill Mark is just uh, preparing a new critical edition of the whole Yavanajataka. But uh, the important point here, the most important here is, I think, that in in Indian tradition, as it seems, um, um, this um, we, we we see that um, how how a new branch is is about to appear because it is clear that um, uh, in the, within the structure of uh, Yavanajataka, 
these questions uh, constitute a different part. Uh, and this different part uh, would later become a different branch still in Indian astrology. Um, with, it is not exactly clear because uh, there might be a lot of texts that have been uh, lost so far, but uh, at least uh, uh, from the from the sixth century, we can say that uh, um, there are some some cases. For example, we can see that Varaha uh, Mihira, for example, the the um, the very famous uh, Indian astrologer, wrote some pieces on military astrology that are also included in in some some chapters on this are also included in the Yavanajataka. And military astrology, as it seems, it's, is is um, is a is a fine example um, of uh, of some some inceptional approaches because, um, of course, in this case, we can't see that it, it, it is natal. And his son Prithuyashas uh, uh, wrote um, a standalone work on 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 questions uh, uh, titled uh, Satpanchashika, which refers to. Um, to the to the organization of the book, which consists of uh, seven seven short chapters, um, and uh, have as, and and have some te- and has some teachings on on different topics like um, uh, thought interpretation, for example, in this case, and running away, and and the other topics that are that are um, uh, are known from um, the previous era. Right. So so Varahamira, who who lived in the sixth century, and his son. Especially, write what we know are the first datable works on horary astrology in the Indian tradition, for sure. If we take the Yavanajataka sort of off the table as not being very certain in terms of its time frame. Yes, uh, we can we can say that uh, Yavanajataka is still very important. Uh, but uh, what we see here is uh, is that um, there is a there is a, a tendency uh, to 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 make. Um, these sort of inceptional issues into into a new branch of astrology that that would become prashna uh, questions in Indian astrology. So it is not exactly clear it whether it has or it had already been started in the um, with the with the Yavana Jataka, but now from from the sixth century on we we see it clearly in Indian astrology. Right, and and there's some interesting practices in some interesting versions of horary astrology in India that developed um, that I've always been really curious about because Pingree, David Pingree, towards the end of his life, he actually ended up arguing that horary astrology originated in India with the Avana Jataka, and that eventually it was transmitted through Persia back to the West, and then that's why Western astrologers started practicing it, and a large part of my Paper ten years ago was trying to trace the development of his thought in order to understand why he changed his mind. Because earlier in his career, in the sixties and seventies, he was very explicit about saying Hori goes back to the first century with Dorotheus, and then eventually it's not practiced very frequently until the medieval period, and then it becomes a full-fledged fourth branch. But then, sometime in the eighties and nineties, he, in his written works, he suddenly. Changes the narrative, and he says that horary was not practiced and, and did not originate in the Hellenistic tradition, but instead it originated in India with the Avanajataka, and then developed from there. And while you know what we've been talking about in terms of the reference in, in Dorotheus seems to contradict that, and and I'm actually I'll forever really wonder why he changed his mind on that because it seems like that one 
reference in the Arabic book of Dorotheus that's then backed up in Hephaestio seems like clear evidence. And so I wonder if he saw something in the manuscripts that changed his mind later on. Um, the, the point that I was making is just that in India, there's this version of horary called uh, Ashtamangala Prashna, and it incorporates omenology and a bunch of other interesting practices into the practice of horary astrology. And I've always been curious how practices like that might have developed or might have influenced the development of horary in India. Well, um, your question regarding Pingree's ideas, well, we cannot um, exclude the possibility that somehow Pingree had the more material at hand than, uh, than we have at the moment. But I think um, uh, we must accept the fact that uh, for, for academic scholars, um, um, mostly dealing with astrology um, from, the, from the perspective of a historian, or a historian of science, these uh, fine distinctions between event charts, um, thought interpretation, consultation, or 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 actual horary questions when it is the querent's discretion to decide when he wants to to get the uh, the, the chart cast. Uh, these are not very important. And yeah, if if if, if uh, someone just uh, um, looks at um, at uh, different texts in in with it is it is just a question of perspective how we just evaluate uh, these texts. Sure, sure. Yeah, I was always just curious because I started writing and doing this research uh, in 2006, and then sadly he Pingree actually passed away like right around that time, right as I was becoming familiar with his work and studying his scholarship, and he really set the standard and, and outlined a lot of the basic research that one has to review in order to begin to tackle this question of the, the origins of horary? Yes. Well, but this is really sad. This is really sad for, 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 for any historians of science that he, he passed away in 2005. Yeah. And, and, and left a lot of projects unfinished. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, luckily, there there's new generations of of academics and scholars and historians that have been coming in and and sort of picking up some of that work and and taking over. And so it's good. I mean, you know, people like Stefan Hyland in the academic community, or people like Benjamin Dykes in the astrological community, and then uh, you know, people like yourself as well now that are focusing on this issue of the origins of horary and helping to flesh it out and to reconstruct it in more detail and more publicly than than Pingree was able to in his career um uh, i guess that um um there is there is um so there are some more important uh, um uh, things nowadays uh that uh, that wasn't so clear pre- previously for example the biggest problem i guess in the research uh, of astrology uh, in the history of astrology is that, that there is a sort of a gap between hellenistic astrology and arabic astrology um um i would like to exclude indian astrology from this from this description because um uh, although there were some contacts between the Hellenistic word and the Arabic word, and of course uh, uh, between the Indian um, uh, subcontinent, it seems that um, shortly after the um, uh, the development of uh, Arabic astrology and uh, and uh, and uh, importing some ideas from from the Arabic astrologers into India. Uh, 
under the uh, umbrella term Tajik astrology, somehow the development uh, 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 took uh, a, a different course. But the b- biggest problem, what I'm I'm, I'm just referring to, is um, the complete disappearance of Persian astrology, of Sasanian astrology. I would use this. I would prefer to use this term because. Uh, um, we are talking about the distinct time period, about the uh, Sasanian Empire that uh, lasted from the 3rd century CE to the um, 7th century uh, CE. And uh, during which era, um, a lot of astrological texts must have been composed um, um, according to our scanty um, um, fragments found in later uh, works. But uh, actually, um, there are a lot of, um, of fragments found in, in, in Arabic astrological works that uh, haven't been exploited so far. Just um, let me mention two names uh, who are very important, or who would be really important for the research on, on, on the origins of uh, horary astrology. Um, As-Saimari and uh, Al-Kasrani. Uh, who both uh, lived in the ninth century and who apparently relied on a vast, uh, now mostly lost material in Middle Persian, and they they uh, referred to um, to different uh, authorities whose output is not now at all. Right. Yeah, that's a, a really important point, and that's going to be. I mean, that's the big question and the big black hole in our understanding, which is. Uh, what did the practice of astrology look like during the Sasanian Persian Empire, which started uh, around, let's say, the third century CE and lasted until about the what the seventh century CE? So you have Persia basically, and astrology is being practiced in Persia during this time. And then what happens is that with the advent of the Islamic Empire in the Seventh uh, century, uh, it sort of explodes out of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and takes over basically most of the Middle East and parts of the Mediterranean. And a lot of the uh, Sasanian Persian texts on astrology that were written up to that point were destroyed. And we know that some of those texts had introduced new technical doctrines and new techniques in areas like mundane astrology, where they seem to have introduced the technique of historical astrology and using the Jupiter-Saturn cycles in order to create uh, clean like thousand-year periods of history in order to break history up into dynasties and determine the advent of rulers and religious leaders and things like that. But there's a pretty strong possibility. It's, it's becoming stronger and stronger, especially since the release of Especially last year, after Benjamin Dykes and Eduardo Gramalia released their translation of the surviving works of Theophilus of Edessa, where one of the really interesting points is that Theophilus was living in the early medieval period in the 8th century, but he was writing in Greek and he was still drawing on earlier authors like Dorotheus. But he's one of the first authors who wrote in Greek, where he was also doing horary astrology. But what's interesting is a lot of his horary work looks like just taking electional rules and applying it to questions. And he, for the most part, doesn't have that more dynamic approach to horary that involves the rulers of the houses uh, that shows up just a generation later in the authors like Masha Allah and Saul bin Bisher 
who were contemporaries of his in Baghdad. And, and one of the things that was interesting in one of the texts that was translated last year of Theophilus's works is that he said, like Theophilus says at one point explicitly that he only learned the Persian technique of using the Jupiter-Saturn cycle conjunctions in mundane astrology after he moved to Baghdad and learned it from his contemporaries. And so that actually made me wonder if that wasn't the only technique that was sort of unique that was coming from the Persian tradition that would have been that he might not have known about as somebody who was only using the Hellenistic texts up to that point, but perhaps that other dynamic approach to horary astrology that also used additional concepts like transfer of light and collection of light and things like that, perhaps that was coming from the Persian tradition that had developed over the previous century or two at that time. And that's why it then shows up around that time period in the works of Masha Allah and Saul as a sort of almost fully formed approach. Well, this is a very likely scenario, I must say. Um, but I guess that uh, uh, there need to be uh, so a lot of uh, more work need to be done on this issue because uh, it is not just about some conceptual uh, questions like uh, well, the more dynamic approaches or a more static approach of the earlier Hellenistic texts. What we should see uh, uh, the ancestors um, of uh, of uh, of uh, real special particular uh, techniques, just to just to to see the whole development. Uh, for example, uh, dignities. Just to talk about dignities, because dignities um, uh, seem to uh, to play a, um, a very important role in 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 Arabic astrology. And it is also an interesting fact that, that this this word seems not to exist in, in Hellenistic astrology, at least not in this form. Right. So they didn't uh, apply point scores to the dignities. That was sort of like a, what, like a ninth or 10th century development, right? Uh, well, this is an interesting question because if one looks at the Yavanajatak, for example, there are some, some, some point systems that are, um, are, a bit similar to to this uh, sort of late uh, Arabic uh, uh, scoring system, but uh, of course uh, in in Hellenistic text uh, you can't see this. Uh, but my point here is that uh, uh, while we we just um, use this word dignity as um, as a well established um, astrological concept and expression and term, um, well actually in this in this form just didn't exist in the Hellenistic astrology. Oh right, yeah, you're right. So they didn't refer to it as dignity. That was a later. Um, they had the concept of like planets being in their domiciles being auspicious, or planets being in their exaltations being more auspicious. But they didn't refer to it as quote unquote dignity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, there were some 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 expressions for 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 votes, for example, or familiarity. But but there was no umbrella term like dignity. Not to speak about the fact that um, that uh, uh, anyone uh, dealing with medieval astrology knows that the fifth dignity is uh, is the face, and uh, and and it was it wasn't regarded as as such in Hellenistic astrology at all. Right. So that's a really important point, and that's a good one as we start to get towards the end of this discussion, which is just sometimes it's extremely important not to 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 take each tradition on its own terms and not to project uh, assumptions or other things from later traditions onto earlier ones. And that really has been the main issue that I ran into when I first started researching this topic is that so many people 
so many modern astrologers and modern historians just assumed that horary as it was practiced in the later traditions was practiced in just the same way in the earlier traditions but in fact um you know things there there were major differences and you can't necessarily make assumptions like that even if in some instances it seems like a natural assumption to make i mean the most common one is just i've i've, I've seen some people make was just you know of course horary had to exist back then because it seems so obvious to us today but that's not necessarily the case or you, you can't just take things for granted like that when doing historical studies but instead you have to see what evidence survives and then try to draw your conclusions just based on the available evidence yeah i guess uh, if if i if i need to summarize my points uh on 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 the history of horary i would say that yes um horary uh, did exist in hellenistic times but not as horary not with these techniques and not with uh, not on on these conceptual ground that uh, a consultation chart is just enough right yeah and i i would agree with that and say that one of the points is just that astrology is constantly evolving and developing and changing and and growing in different ways and it's it's important to study the different to try to identify the starting point for different types of astrology and to understand the conceptual and practical motivations for why different traditions and different approaches and different branches developed and that if you you know trace horary back you can see it starting to develop um out of inceptional astrology in the 1st century and then eventually growing until eventually it became a full-fledged fourth branch of the tradition by the medieval period but that there was a process of growth and development and it didn't just sort of explode onto the scene fully formed all at once uh necessarily yeah i agree with you completely all right excellent well i think that then starts to to bring us to the end of this discussion i'm trying to think if there's anything else that we meant to mention or wanted to mention so this is something where at some point in the future you're you're going to publish an article or or maybe a book on this topic right uh yeah first i would like to to publish some papers on the topic i would like to 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 deal with the um with the the charts of um of um Zeno's astro- uh, astrologer because uh, although um some of the charts um has been uh, put into a critical edition it seems that um that um some some manuscripts and some translations uh, haven't been uh, taken into consideration so this is i guess a very important thing and maybe uh, it could also be developed into a book that contains some commentary of the technical details also there is another important personality of this era uh, who is a um, somewhat obscure personality Julian of Laodicea who um apparently wrote on natal topics and on inceptional topics as well so i guess that um, well his his output his fragments should be examined a little bit more thoroughly and also as i have just mentioned um uh arabic astrologers like uh, saimari and uh kasrani um are, are like treasuries of uh, of information so maybe these these books should also be sifted through of course this is a long project but i hope that i could do it in the upcoming decades sure so there's there's plenty of work left to be done and i mean what would you say 
if there's other people who listen to this episode and, and get interested in taking a similar approach in terms of studying the history of astrology and studying some of these texts, I mean, what is the the best way to do that? Or would you recommend that people follow the, the sort of path that you have? Or or what are the options in terms of that if they wanted to to go in a similar direction as you've gone? Well, this is a very good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, this really surprises me. Well, uh, actually, uh, so now in, in, in 2018, we are in a very lucky position because now we have a lot of uh, uh, translations and English translations of uh, different ancient texts due to the efforts of, of, of uh, scholars and astrologers. Uh, yeah, but uh, there are a lot of, uh, of manuscripts and a lot of texts left untranslated, especially because um, somehow it is interesting that uh, texts extant uh, with an author and with a title are, are most attracting, uh, more, more <laughs> attracting uh, uh, people's, um, uh, 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 well, you know, intentions uh to 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 examine them and and maybe to translate them but yeah th- the main point is that if if someone would like to uh to dig deep into the uh history of astrology one thing is very important is to learn languages and 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 try to try to read the primary sources themselves unfortunately in this field scholars uh, haven't been able to to uh to uh, serve us. Um, so previous uh, generations of scholars uh, haven't been able to serve us with uh, critical editions and and uh, delicacies like this. So if uh, if if someone wants to 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 find some some sort of gold, they need to to dig it for themselves. Sure. So maybe learning Greek and Latin at the at the very least, and and maybe Arabic if you're feeling adventurous as well. Yeah, I guess that uh, well, Arabic sounds a little bit a little bit tough for a lot of people, but I must say that uh, according to my experience, Arabic is uh, it's slightly easier than Greek, or yeah, maybe much easier than Greek. So I guess that um, that uh, uh, Arabic and Greek are the primary languages that should be used uh, on on manuscripts. And um, now, fortunately, more and more manuscripts are are uh, available on the internet in digital forms so um it is it there are um not so big obstacles um uh to to study these these texts um and it was uh, like uh, uh even a couple of years ago right right definitely all right great well i think that might be a good note to end on then so thanks thanks a lot for joining me for this discussion today i really appreciate it <laughs> thank you for inviting me <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone uh, for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, Let us know what you think in the comments section below. And uh, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. 